morning, everybody. We are continuing with our sermon series, looking at the life of David. And this week, we're going to read together the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel. And if you'd like to follow along, then you can open up your pew Bible to page 233, page 233 of the pew Bible. Uh, This chapter 23 is one story, but it is divided up into four scenes. So we'll look at each of the four scenes in turn. And scene one, um, actually we we don't need the the overheads, I'll just read it. Um, Scene one begins at verse one and ends at uh, verse six. So let's let's, uh, have a look at that together. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now, Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. At scene one, David is, of course, the true king of Israel. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel when he was a teenager. At this point in the narrative, that was probably some time ago, possibly 10 years ago at this point. At this point, of course, Saul sits upon the throne. And although he also was told many years ago that the Lord had rejected him as king, he is stubbornly holding on to the throne and is pursuing David in order to kill him because he is envious. He knows that David is God's chosen one. Well, in scene one, David hears from an unknown source of a Philistinian invasion of the land. And he is told, look, see. Well, what we see is that David has learnt the lessons that we've already been talking about in this series. Uh, If you want to look, if you want to see, then uh, don't use your eyes. Ask Jesus. And Saul, in contrast, the faithless man, Saul we know from past, present and future actions, Saul would have just kind of a knee-jerk reaction. He would have set off at once, gathered his troops, chivalrous and charismatic to be sure, knight in shining armor, he would have gone. But he wouldn't have stopped to pray, to ask. But here we see David stop and ask the Lord for insight. You see, David knows that the need is not the call. The need and the call might be closely related, but actually the call is the call. The the need is not the call. 
and sure, David knows that this is kind of like a, this is a king job, you know, saving people, saving God's people from their enemies. Well, that's what, that's what God's king does. But he says, hold on, God, what are you doing in this situation? David asks the Lord, what is the meaning of this for me? Now, verse 6 contains something that we need to know about in order to understand the whole story, the whole chapter. Abiathar, the priest, he is with David, and he has with him the ephod, which is an item of clothing. Exactly what it was like, I don't know. But um, what that means is that in the ephod, he has an instrument called the urumthumim. And we don't know a lot about this either. Maybe it was two stones, one white and one black. Maybe it was uh, two tablets of wood. Whatever it looked like, whatever it was, we do know that it was a way of talking to God and getting answers back from God. Um, If you'd like to stick a finger in chapter 23, uh, if you'd like to, you can flip a couple of pages forward to page 237 and have a look with me at chapter 28, verse 6. Chapter 28, verse 6 is talking about Saul. And it reads, He, Saul, inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. And if you'd like to flip forward again to page 238, chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, chapter 30, verse 7, we read there, Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So that's the significance of Abiathar being with David with the ephod. What David is doing here in chapter 23 is he's praying. He's making requests to God. And he's, he's asking the Lord a question in front of the priest, Abiathar. And then Abiathar would present the answer, having used the Urim Thummim to get a yes-no answer from God. An answer that has been interpreted for us by the priest and or by the narrator. So, so what do we see here in scene one? Well we see that David has the insight to stop and ask the Lord what his will is for him in this situation. And even when his own men point out that pursuing the Philistines will mean leaving a relatively safe place for a dangerous place out of the hills down onto the plain, David is happy to ask God again for confirmation. And you know what? God is happy to give his confirmation. And not only does he give him confirmation, he, he gives a blessing. He gives a promise. The second time it says, I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Um, so God value adds for, for David, gives him a bit extra assurance. He needed reassurance. He received reassurance. God was pleased that he asked for confirmation. And so God sends David to save his people from their enemies. David is victorious because the Lord is with David and David is acting in faith, in trusting obedience to the Lord's command. And he knows that to be 
God's enabling call on his life. If God has called him to do it, then he will be able to do it because God is with him. And God, what we see is that God saves David as David saves others. And that's a formula worth remembering. God saves David as David saves others. Uh, let's look at scene two, beginning at verse seven. Saul was told that David had gone to Kirah, and Saul said, ha, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod! David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And David again asked, Will the citizens of Kirah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kirah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kirah, he did not go there. Or here in scene two, we see uh, Saul yet again, knee-jerk reaction based upon what he thinks he sees. In contrast, David, man of faith, stops, prays, hears, trusts, obeys. And both, both David and Saul, they see the same thing when they look at a walled city. They know that a fortress city surrounded by a high defensive wall, they know it's both a potential refuge, but it's also a potential trap. A city wall can, can lock a man in just as well as it can lock an army out. And so we have David's conversation with the Lord, and it impresses us with his maturity. Um, this guy is open to receiving bad news from God, and actually he does receive bad news from God. When the Lord confirms that the Kilahites would, in the face of starvation and siege, indeed surrender David into Saul's hands, David knows what he must do. Um, perhaps along the way, perhaps we, are, we, we might be tempted to think poorly of those Kilahites, a people who'd surrender um, their savior to save their own skins. Perhaps actually that doesn't ring well with us. But David doesn't grumble or complain, nor does he pray against them. Um, if the Kilahites in defending David, if they had found themselves being disloyal to Saul, the nation of Israel could very easily have descended into a bloody civil war. Uh, David's preparedness to pray and to flee to um, essential and wonderful Christian characteristics, um, uh, to pray and to flee. Um, David's preparedness to pray and to flee once again saves Israel from the possibility of a civil war that could have been incredibly destructive. Scene 3, verses 14 to 18. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God 
did not give David into his hands. While David was at Choresh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Choresh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained in Horesh. Well, um, while at Horesh, uh, David learns that Saul is abroad, and he's just not going to give up until David is dead. And uh, I, I look, I've never, not yet, actually been on the receiving end of a death threat, but I imagine it's quite depressing. Um, and when you see that the person who's issuing the death threats is really, really, really serious, then I imagine that's very, very, very disheartening and very discouraging. Saul is searching for David, we notice. Saul is searching for David, but just cannot find him. Jonathan finds him first go. No problem. Uh, we, we should take note that actually it's not that difficult to find David. Jonathan is a great man, by the way. Um, we don't know as much about Jonathan as we do about David, but from the little that we do know, it's clear that Jonathan is a great man. If anything, perhaps even the better of the two uh, between Jonathan and David. Uh, Jonathan encourages David. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. And what is encouragement? Well, it's this sensational ministry. To, to encourage someone is literally to put courage in them. Um, to encourage someone is to put courage in somebody's heart. Everybody needs Jonathans in their lives. And it is a wonderful thing to have a Jonathan. And it's a wonderful thing to be a Jonathan. Did God tell Jonathan to say these things? Is Jonathan a prophet? Well, no, Jonathan is not a prophet in the Old Testament sense. There's no indication in the text that God has spoken to Jonathan and that Jonathan is passing on an oracle of the Lord. But in the New Testament sense, Jonathan is, is clearly moving in a prophetic manner. Jonathan is reminding David of God's promises to him, which were indeed made through an Old Testament prophet, through the prophet Samuel, to whom God did speak audibly. So Jonathan says to David, David, buddy, God has called you and equipped you and made you a promise. You will be king. Therefore, based on God's word, we can be totally sure that you will be king and that therefore also Saul will never succeed in his plan to harm you. And uh, speaking to us as Christians, the Apostle Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. Well, 
the New Testament gift of prophecy is Holy Spirit-inspired utterance such that people find the courage to believe the promises of God which are all yes in Christ Jesus and to live their lives based upon them. Scene 4, verses 19 to 28. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Chresh, on the hill of Hakirah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern to me, for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you if he is in the area. I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now, David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah, south of Jessamon. Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly! The Philistines are raiding the land! Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That's why they call this place Salah Hamalechoth. Well, um, this time perhaps uh, Saul seems to have learnt something of a lesson because he just actually this time he doesn't go for the knee-jerk reaction. Um, rather than calling his troops out immediately, actually this time he does stop. He stops and he tries to create a strategy. He waits for precise intel and then he acts. Saul now has the Ziphites on his side, guides with local knowledge of the area. And it looks like this time Saul will get the victory. Moving along the two ridges of, of, of a mountain, Saul's troops close in on David and they surround him by way of a pincer movement. It looks like certain death now for David and his men and it looks like death is only a few moments away. We know what was David doing. We know uh, that David was praying and he was praying frantically. And we know that David was praying because actually we prayed his prayer earlier this morning, Psalm 54. Um, when the Ziphites came to Saul and told him, is not David hiding among us? That's how the subtitle reads. Uh, so we know that David was praying and going, I know that God has saved me in the past. I know that he's going to save me today. But how will God save me this time? But just as Saul is finally about to close in and administer the coup de grace, a messenger comes. Come quick, Saul. Philistines are invading the land. And David is saved. At the 59th second of the 11th hour, David is saved. The Lord, who is sovereignly in charge of all things, 
allowed a Philistinian invasion at just the right time and the corresponding message to get to Saul at just the right time for David to be saved yet again for the umpteenth time in this chapter. And David actually has been saved by a miracle, a miracle of coincidence. And actually, as Christians, we all recognize this phenomenon. Um, uh, miracles of coincidence. As, uh, our lives as Christians are often crowded with miracles of coincidence. And sometimes I have days that are crowded with miracles of coincidence. What is a miracle of coincidence? Well, I'm not offering it as some kind of technical term. It's just the phrase by which I simply mean when we see God's hand in something that is incredibly unlikely, perhaps astronomically unlikely, and yet through it we see God's hand clearly at work in a blessing way, in a way which prospers God's work in or through our lives. And um, today's gospel reading uh, includes um, a miracle, and I think it is probably a miracle of coincidence. And indeed, there are many, many miracles of coincidence in the Bible. The fish that Peter caught <clears throat> was almost certainly a red-bellied uh, tilapia. I, I understand it's still to this day a common fish in Lake Galilee, and it's a popular menu item in the restaurants of the Tiberian area uh, around the northern end of Lake Galilee. It's also known, I understand, as St. Peter's fish because uh, it um, collects and holds various things in its mouth. Um, part of its reproductive cycle is to hold its baby fish in its mouth. Um, but it also commonly collects small pebbles, bottle tops, all kinds of things can be found in the mouth of a St. Peter's fish, a red-bellied tilapia. Uh, I also understand that from uh, the Middle Eastern expert Kenneth Bailey, he writes somewhere that it is not unknown, even today, for a fisherman to pull a red-bellied tilapia out of uh, Lake Galilee and to find a coin in its mouth. So this is a natural phenomenon. It's not the weirdest thing in the world for Peter, who was a fisherman, to haul a fish out of Lake Galilee and to find a silver coin in its mouth, even though that might sound a little bit bizarre to us. What we need to note, though, as we read the account in Matthew's Gospel, we need to see that Jesus instructed Peter to throw his line in and for Peter to know and expect that the first fish he'd catch would have exactly a four drachma coin in its mouth, a little silver coin, slightly smaller than our five-cent piece. And we can assume that that is exactly what happened. In actual fact, Matthew doesn't tell us that that's what happened, but we can assume that if that's not what had happened, Matthew would have told us what had happened. So we, therefore we can safely assume that that's what happened. Well, Jesus and Peter actually needed some, they needed some money, actually, and they needed God to provide, and God did provide, and God provided exactly was needed exactly when it was needed uh, by way of a miracle of coincidence a natural yet exceedingly unlikely thing happening at precisely the right time so we might ask ourselves therefore was it purely by chance that there was a four drachma coin in the mouth of the first fish that Peter caught and the answer is of course yes it was purely by chance. Does that mean that God wasn't at work in that situation? No, of course God was at work. 
the two things can be true simultaneously. It was a coincidence, and it was a miracle. Two apparently contradictory ideas that I'm now blending into one. It was a miracle of coincidence. And miracles of coincidence are really very important because they remind us of two important things simultaneously. They remind us of something about God and they remind us something about ourselves. What do they teach us about God? Well, actually, they tell us, they teach us, miracles of coincidence teach us that God's in, in charge. And that God's in charge, he's sovereignly in charge over everything that's chaotic, random, chance, happenstance. God still reigns. In an actual fact that God is a God of order, not of disorder, and that he reigns over randomness and chance is actually the first thing we learn about him in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, now, the earth was formless and empty, and there was darkness over the surface of the deep. But the Spirit of God was above the deep, was hovering over the waters was hovering over, over the oceans, the sea, the chaos, the, the tohu wabahu in Hebrew, the disorder and the randomness. The Spirit of God's above it. He's sovereignly in charge. It's the first thing we learn about God. Yeah, we experience chance things, randomness things. We experience those things and not only as real, but actually as frighteningly dominant over our lives from time to time. But God's in charge. He is totally sovereign over the tahu wabahu, over he is totally in charge over the chaos and the randomness. Um, that's what we remember every time we get a miracle of coincidence. Oh yeah, I remember now, God's in charge. What do we learn about ourselves from miracles of coincidence? Well, actually, we learn something very important about ourselves from miracles of coincidence. In this scene today, in the final, of today's, uh, final scene of today's drama, we actually see that Saul is a slave to circumstances. Poor old Saul. Killing David has been this guy's singular hobby and obsession for years. And he gets within a hair's breadth of doing so, and yet he is defeated by circumstances beyond his control. Reminds me of that sign I saw, um, an A-frame sign put in front of a conference center. I saw this picture on the internet. It said, Clairvoyance Conference Cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances. <laughs> this is what happened to Saul. Circumstances beyond his control. Could he not have divided his forces somehow to answer both concerns, perhaps staying with a small band to kill David and his men while the others went off to fight? The I don't know, but he didn't do it. Um, God just stuck a hook through his, through his mouth and, and dragged him off. Saul is trying to eliminate David because David's existence makes him feel vulnerable. Saul wants to be in control of his life. But the more he tries to eliminate vulnerabilities, the less in control of his life he actually is. Saul is, in scene four of this drama, a slave to circumstances. In contrast, David is not a slave to circumstances, but rather a servant of the Lord. And you know what? The good news is that you can't be both. You can either be a slave to circumstances or a slave to Jesus, but you can't be a slave to both. If you are a servant of the Lord, you are not a slave to circumstances. 
because we serve a Lord who is Lord over the circumstances, the doors, be they open or closed, the chance and the random. He is the Lord of circumstances. Uh, who is this Lord? He is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth walked on the waters. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth was never defeated by chance and chaotic things, even when they happened to him. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord over the chance, the chaotic, the random, the disordered, as well as the doors that are either open or closed in our lives. And so if you are a servant of the Lord, then you are not a slave to circumstances. And here's the really good news. In actual fact, circumstances will serve you as you serve the Lord serving others. Uh, that, that can sometimes be very difficult to believe. Uh, uh, David and his men, as they ran this way and as they ran that way, as they hid in this cave and in that forest, they might have felt that actually life was a little bit out of control and they felt very vulnerable and chance and random things happened to them. But no, actually, God had a purpose in it, teaching David incredibly important lessons. Um, and uh, the, Lord was, the Lord was in charge. The Lord was in control. Um, and uh, so Paul writes for us, Surely we know uh, that all things work together for good uh, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. Uh, so let's pray. Um, Father, uh, thank you. Uh, Lord, sometimes uh, chance, well, chance and random things happen to us all the time. And sometimes chance and random things happen to us that actually look pretty scary and threaten to kill us. Um, Lord, we do thank you that you are Lord over the chaos, the randomness, the chance, the happenstance. Um, thank you that you promise uh, uh, that as we serve you, circumstances will serve us. Please help us to be people of faith like David Stopping, praying, asking, hearing, trusting, obeying. Thank you that you will save us as we save others. And we uh, ask all these things for the glory of the Father and in Jesus' name. Amen.